Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today, I'm happy to welcome a guest who has been involved with publishing since at least 1975. That's when, I, as far back as I could find, when he founded the Mysterious Press dedicated to publishing the best books by the best authors. He founded the Mysterious Bookshop in Midtown Manhattan, which now has the distinction of being the oldest and largest mystery specialist bookstore in the world. We originally met, I believe, at a BoucherCon, a mystery writer convention, being introduced by our mutual friend, Andrew Julie of The Strand, at a book release party for his multi-authored mystery, No Rest for the Dead. Welcome, Otto. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm great that we're able to. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that we're able to actually have this uh, chance to talk because, as I mentioned before this interview, we're really working to expand the uh, the scope of what this podcast is about, where it's just about writing in general and um, paying it forward to all the aspiring writers and or artists. So, I guess my first question is, how did you get started in publishing in the first place? Were you first a writer and expanded into it, or you just start publishing and then became a writer? How how'd that work? Uh, I was first a reader, uh, and <laughs> okay, then fair enough, <laughs> fair enough, <laughs> for for a long time. Then I became a, a collector. I also wrote a, a book, co-wrote a book called the Encyclopedia of mystery and detection, uh, which won, which won an Edgar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was really in, in a way, the first seriously important reference book in the history of mystery fiction, believe it or not, when that book was written in the early seventies, there were almost no reference books on mystery fiction. And so, uh, my partner on the book, Chris Steinbrenner wrote all of the stuff about movies and television and radio and I wrote the stuff about authors and books and uh, and characters. And because the, the book became pretty successful, uh, I made friends with a lot of writers and with the greatest mystery editor who ever lived, Joan Kahn. And over a lunch one day, I was lamenting the fact that mysteries were not being given the kind of credit that they deserve for being serious literature in many cases. Believe me, not all of them. But but the best of them, uh, just like other general fiction, the best of them were serious literature. And I was complaining that uh, publishers were were producing them in cheap bindings, using two-color jackets instead of full color and that so many other books got. And she said, well, why don't you start your own publishing company? And I didn't know anything about starting a company. I was a sports writer. You know, that was my early career was as a sports writer. And I said, you know, by God, I'll, I'll do it. Um, and I knew nothing. I started out, I, I carried a bunch of, uh, of pages to a printer and handed them to him and said, would you, here, go print a book? And he said, uh, no, you, you, have, you, you have to have typeset. I said, well, you're a printer, isn't that what you do? And that is truly how <laughs> oh, naive hilarious. I was. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's how you got your start there, and that's, that, that's yeah, I made definitely learning from the bottom up. <laughs> from the bottom up. Really, I made every mistake that it is humanly possible to make, and some that were inhuman. Yeah. So where did your – so you, obviously you wrote that, and then you, then you branched into actually writing mystery fiction yourself, correct? 
No, no. Well, I, I did. I co-wrote a couple of mysteries, uh, but I, but really, I, 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 please let's be clear about one thing. I am not a mystery writer. Okay. Uh, I, I've written a lot of books and, and too many articles and columns and papers and so on. But I'm not a real writer. The really good mystery writers are real writers. Okay. You know, and and I did some things for money because uh, I was trying to earn a living as a freelancer, and uh, you know, the publishing company was certainly wasn't making any money in its early years. If anything, it was a, it was a drain. <clears throat> so uh, yeah, I, I regard, and I think one of the reasons that I've been fairly successful in in the as a mystery publisher and bookseller is that I regard what mystery writers do as miraculous. I mean, it, it is looking at a blank sheet of paper, creating a story, but far more important, creating characters that are actually living and breathing in, in, your, in your mind is so extraordinary that I hold them in such high regard. They're godlike figures to me. Wow. That's... Now, as we are talking, you know, this is, like I said, the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. So one thing I'm very interested that, you know, came up that we're able to, to talk is your perspective on what makes a good uh, mystery story. And then, because that will branch also to in any story, what makes something good that, that will establish success or not with respect to a writer. So you gave one thing, a believable character. Any other aspects that you have found that really sustains a writer to... I guess overcoming that that hurdle of acceptance. The you know the criteria that I use for uh, regarding mystery fiction as really good or even very rarely but occasionally great are the same criteria that anyone would use uh, for uh, for other literary uh, works. Uh, you, you have to have characters that live and breathe. Uh, if, you, if you're telling a good story, but you don't care what happens to those people, um, then you don't really, you don't get engage your, your reader for a very long period of time. A story can only go so far. You need to be able to have some characters that, that matter. Uh, in, the, in the mystery world, you also have the challenge that literary fiction or straight fiction doesn't have. In a mystery, you have to have a, a conclusion, a solution. You, you need the classic Greek arc of a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, a lot of coming-of-age novels or what I call New Yorker fiction, uh, not, nothing really changes. They could be beautifully written, but they, they're not as compelling to me as really great stories with really great characters. And the third element, which is, it, it sounds like it should be basic, but, it, but, it's, but it's not usually uh, immediately noticeable, is style. You have to be able to write, to, in order for me to want to publish your book or to, or to read your book, is you have to be able to write in a way that I've never heard before. I, I was I was good friends with Shel Silverstein for a while, and he said something to me that resonated and still does in my mind. This is twenty years twenty years later almost, and uh, he said something, and I said, "Oh my God, that is so perceptive! I've never heard anyone 
say it like that before. And he said, I don't know, that's why they call me a poet. And that's what I look for in, in, a, in a novel that I want to publish or that I want to read. I want to be able to read something like, oh, wow, I've never heard that described that way or I've never heard that explained in those words. That, that's actually a good theme because I've had so many different explanations of what's being looked for, but as a publisher and one who espouses the, the basic philosophy, you only want to publish the best, so this is the criteria you use to be able to establish that. Exactly. Exactly right. And when people say, well, mysterious press, well, what, what do you publish exactly? And I, I have a very short answer, and it, but it's really from my heart. I said, I publish literary crime fiction. Literary being the part where somebody has a style, where somebody is, is writing in a way uh, that, uh, that sometimes approaches poetry. Right. And my favorite writers are people like, uh, well, Raymond Chandler, uh, but also the great American espionage writer, Charles McCary, who was a poet in real life, and his character is a poet, but the prose is poetry. And that's also true for, I, I published Joyce Carol Oates, for example, mm -hmm. and she, she writes in a way that nobody else writes. And, and you recognize that style. Uh, and Thomas H. Cook is another writer, not as well known as some of some of the others, but just a, a, an absolute poet in the way that he phrases his language. James Crumley, uh, who wrote The Last Good Kiss and some other books, uh, was also the kind of writer where, as you were reading it, you were hoping that somebody else would be nearby so that you could you could say, "Hey, listen to this, listen to this sentence." And when you, when you read that and you see that and you feel that, you know you've got something special on your hands. Right. Right. Well, that makes sense. And that's, so that's literary mystery fiction. So one of the things I, I brought up and you said, I don't know that I really recognize that as a subgenre, but I mentioned to you the whole thing of, of um, science fiction mystery books. And um, so I'd like to discuss that for a little bit because there is like some of the ones that I was, you know, in that list I sent you with uh, Chris Russ, who's one of our judges, actually, he wrote The Disappeared, uh, Tim Powers, another one of our judges, The Anubis Gates, John Varley was, was one of our judges, Steel Beach, and then Alfred Bester with his Demolished Man. And then they, they also listed uh, Douglas Adams, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, but these were all listed as science fiction mystery books. What's your um, view on that? I'd like to discuss that for a bit. It's, uh, you know, it's a tricky thing. You know, when, I've, when you first mentioned that to me, I said, that, that's not a genre. Um, and, and I guess it is, but, it, you know, it's got very few. It's, it, it doesn't have that many examples of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, mysteries in, in, in the classic sense of a mystery, meaning a mystery, something that needs to be solved. Uh, and obviously... We're talking about crime here when we talk about mysteries in the way that we're doing, uh, the way that we're discussing it. We're not talking about metaphysical works where there's, there are greater mysteries than, than any of us can ever answer. Right. So we're talking about mystery fiction, detective fiction, crime fiction. Um, it is something that, yes, science fiction can have that element. So can a Western. 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the sheriff is the private detective or he's the police officer or whatever. Right. So can fantasy fiction. Uh, it, you, you generally, a lot of people confuse, confuse, say, oh, well, you, you publish mysteries, so you must like horror or supernatural. I said, no, no, no. They're diametrically opposed. Supernatural elements in a mystery generally take away the whole concept of solving a mystery because it's not based on rationality anymore. It's not based on observation and deduction. It's based on supernatural elements. Now, there are examples where it crosses over, and they, those are amazing tours de force. Uh, Randall Garrett uh, did it in his Lord Darcy series. Uh, where he created another universe where the laws of magic apply. And he still was able to write a locked room mystery. What I mean, it's just an amazing achievement. Yeah. Uh, to some degree, William Hurtsburg with Fallen Angel did that, crossing over between two genres. And science fiction really is a detective story just happens to be set in the future. Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov is, is, a, is a great example of that. It's a real, dete- real detective story. It just happens to be said in a future time. So based upon that, for someone who's, like I said, who's an aspiring writer or even someone who's been writing for a while and wants to be able to bridge that and, and, and know the do's and don'ts or things to stay clear of, steer clear of on, on addressing mystery and really that the demarcation between what's mystery versus what's not, uh, as it applies to science fiction, what would be some of the guidelines you'd recommend to writers to, um, to follow and to stay clear of? Well, I, I, I just touched on them. You, you have to, it, the, the first part is, is, uh, is constructing a mystery, the plot of a mystery. You need a crime. That is, that is not evident, I mean, the, the, or who committed it, or why it was committed, or how it was committed. At least one of those elements has to be involved in the crime. And then you have to have an investigation, whether it's by an official policeman, by an amateur detective, or a private eye. It doesn't matter. Somebody has to serve as the person who wants to solve that mystery. And then you have to have a solution that is logical and rational. You can't suddenly say, oh, a ghost came from nowhere and killed him and then disappeared. And you can't do that. So the mystery element comes first. And then your background. Your background could be a western town in America in 1820, or it could be the planet Jupiter in the year 3 million. You know, the background is the background that you're comfortable writing in. And uh, I don't care about that very much. I, I care about the mystery element uh, and having its, its tropes co- uh, used in the proper fashion. Okay, well, that's, that, that's actually very good advice on that because, I mean, we've had several of our Writers of Future winners go on into other genres. We had Karen Joy Fowler, who obviously made her big uh, splash with uh, the Jane Austen Book Club, but Joe Beverly with... Um, she became a, one of the masters of, of romance. Nancy Farmer in the House of the Scorpion that won a National Book Award. Virginia Baker wrote Jackknife and, and other stories. So we've got, you know, it's important that even if a person's doing their entry, because Rise of the Future affords 
an aspiring writer an opportunity to be able to break in, but they don't have to stick with that genre. They can move on to other areas, which others have very successfully done. So what you're talking about in this discussion, I think is really important for them to be able to have some more tips and some more inspiration of what to do, how to be able to expand in that area. Well, uh, yeah, to some degree, I, I, I agree. I think that's, that's, that's all to the good. I will say that uh, what, I've only, what we've only been talking about here is the art, is the creativity, is, is the work, the, the, the manuscript, the book. What we're not touching on is uh, actually selling that book. And if you are crossing genres or mixing genres, it can be very tricky, very difficult sometimes to sell that book, to market that book, because I'm a bookseller, as you know, in addition to being a publisher. So if we get a book in here, well, it's easier for us because we our store sells only mystery fiction. So if it happens to have a 2,000-year-old background or a 100-year-old background or a 500-year-in-the-future background, or it's set in a foreign country or in a different time or place, there's there's still all mysteries in my store. But if you go to a bigger store that has sections, they have history, they have science fiction, they have mystery fiction, they have Western fiction, and if you're crossing genres, where do they put the book? So if you have a mystery fan who wants to read a mystery, and doesn't care if it's in the future or if it's in the West or, uh, or in a submarine, it, 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 they, they just want mysteries. But if you have put that book in your science fiction section or your Western section or your history section, historical uh, fiction section, you may not find that book. So you, you have an additional... It sounds like you have more opportunities because you're covering more than one genre. On the other hand, you're putting yourself at some risk because you may want to be selling it as a mystery that happens to be set in the future, but it's going to be set in the science fiction section. And if the main thrust of that book is a mystery, a real science fiction fan may say, eh, this isn't what I want. I, I, you know, I want something... I want something different. Good. So you need to know what you're getting into when you get into it. So if you're going to write a book, and it's like you said, it's actually a mystery with a science fiction setting, then it needs to be sold as a mystery book if that's really what it is. Yeah, the, the dust jacket needs to make it clear that this is not just a science fiction book or, conversely, that it's not just a mystery book, that it's a combination. You can do that with art on the cover. You could do that with the right title. Uh, you could do it with flap copy and, uh, or cover copy. You can do it uh, in a variety of ways, but it's something that, that the, both the author and the publisher needs to pay attention to so that it doesn't fall between two stools. Okay, that's, very good. that's a very good point on that. Now, one thing I've not talked about with anybody else before, which you just brought up, though, is the dust jacket, the cover. So in your experience as a bookseller and as a publisher, how significant, how important is the, um, is the cover or dust jacket to the sale, whether it be impulse or actually someone's going around and just looking, I need a good whatever genre they want for a customer like that? Life and death. Life and death for the book. If you have a bad jacket, I don't care how great that book is. If you're, you know, if, if you're a typical buyer, I'm not talking about 
uh, an established author. I'm not talking about a, st- a small store where the proprietor is going to hand sell you a book. If you are the typical buyer in a, let's say, I, I don't like to use this language as an independent bookseller, but let's say you're in a Barnes and Noble and you're, you're browsing the shelves and you're looking for something that, that inspires you. You say, no, I, I really want to read a great mystery. What am I going to buy? And you're looking at covers and you're pulling books off the shelf. If it has a lousy dust jacket, you're never even going to open the book. It'll never make it. So it doesn't matter how bad the jacket on a Stephen King or a John Grisham uh, or James Patterson book. It makes no difference. It's a Stephen King or a John Grisham or James Patterson. And if you're a fan of those very, very popular writers, you're going to want the book. I don't care if it's a blank sheet of paper on there with, with a title and the author's name. It's not going to matter. Right. But if you're a first novelist or a second or a third time novelist and what we call a mid-list author, meaning somebody who's not selling hundreds of thousands of copies, you need the support of a really good jacket. Look, at the Serious Press, we pay a lot of money to a very good studio to come up with good covers that my, my publisher, Charles, and I spend, uh, or if it's a scarlet title, a different imprint that, that I have, Louisa, we work with that, with that artist and with that studio really hard to get the right cover to reflect what's in the book in a colorful, interesting, uh, compelling way. Do you, do you uh, require that the artist read the book or at least a summary of it? Yes. He, can't, he cannot or she cannot possibly do a really good cover that reflects the book unless, unless he or she reads something that gives, the, uh, that gives a really serious idea of what the book is like. We generally will supply that with catalog copy, flap copy, a, a, a summary of the book. Uh, but frequently, most of the good artists that we work with actually read part of the book to get a sense of style uh, in addition to the, the rudiments of the, of the plot. You know, you can write a thriller in any number of ways. It can be really violent. It could take you across continents, across countries, with multiple villains, dynamite, car chases. You could do all of those things. Or it could be a domestic thriller where, where a lone person is being stalked by a single person with a very different style. And you can't always tell that in a very brief summary. You want, uh, you want to know what the style is, uh, what the focus of that book is. And you can do that best by reading some pages. And, and they almost always do. Okay, that, that's good advice also for the uh, artists listening to this. Something that's a, a good tip for success then. Now, on the, um, the subject of mysteries, I'm going back now to Pulp Fiction days. You know, there was, you know, because on this list that I um, read you, there was, you know, there, there's definitely um, some of the earlier writers of, of the uh, mystery Pulp Fiction Going back on that one I just said there, there was, um, I think, The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester. That was in 52, but even going earlier. How has Pulp Fiction 
Well, first of all, what impact has Pulp Fiction had on current um, mystery writing? And maybe describe like the evolution, as you have observed, from the original days of, of the mystery magazines to the current um, mystery. The, uh, well, the, yeah, I read a lot of pulps. I, I know you know that. Yes, um, yes. You know, I published, uh, or, or Random House has published several books of pulp fiction that I've edited uh, for Random House. So I read a lot of pulp, but I also read a lot of 19th century fiction. I was a huge fan of, well, in addition to Sherlock Holmes, which everybody should be, yes. but Wilkie Collins and Charles Dickens, who most of whose books have mystery and crime elements. Uh, and then there were other books set uh, in the early 20th century, and then the pulps became very popular, and then other things uh, moved on. So the pulps were 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 part of a time, the 20s, 30s, and, uh, and 40s, were really the time of the pulps. Um, I think in those pulp days, a lot of writers uh, were earning so little for, for each story. You know, the famous uh, line is that they earned a penny a word. Um, and so, uh, th- so they wrote very quickly, and a lot of really bad fiction was written in the pulps mm-hmm. because these writers were trying to write 3,000 words a day and they weren't taking time to rewrite and polish and edit and look for the le bon, the, 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 the bon mousse, the, the, the perfect word to fit in exactly uh, where they needed it, uh, le mot juste. Uh, so they were writing very quickly. Now, the really good writers could write quickly and still wrote brilliantly. Um, Hammett and Chandler are the two examples that I know best. Uh, but there were so many really talented writers working, uh, and some of their stories were outstanding, and some weren't because they were writing so much. Some were just better than others. Um, and so the influence of early 20th century fiction to, uh, to the pulp era were a lot of words because people like Dickens and other writers of the 19th century also got paid by the words. Dickens, most of his books were published in weekly parts, and he had to write enough to fill 20, generally 19, uh, they call them 20 weekly parts, and then the last one was two parts in one. And so each week there were these chapters of his book, and so he was writing, but had to write enough to get the reader to want to make sure that he bought the next book, the next installment. So we had to have enough thrilling stuff ending each element of those books. In the pulps, in addition to the short stories, a lot of pulps ran serials and and serial novels. And the exact same thing pertained. If you didn't hook that reader at the very end, they weren't going to care about what happened next week if it was a weekly pulp or next month if it was a monthly pulp. Uh, so you had to have that hook that, that kept that reader wanting to read it. Now, you look at pub- publishing today, look at James Patterson, probably the most successful writer in the world, and his books have short chapters and every chapter, or just about every chapter, ends with a hook that makes the reader want to turn the page and keep moving. 
Mickey Spillane did very similar things back in the 40s, late 40s and 50s. You know, sort of these cliffhanger chapter endings that made you want to read. And I think that was that was inherited just to a large degree from the pulps. Okay, that's cause also during the pulp period too. You had the uh, the depression happening. You had post World War One, pre World War Two. So there was a lot of people wanted to be able to escape. So it was also referred to as escapist fiction that people, for at least a little bit, could be, you know, um, away from their out of work or threat of being out of work or afraid of being sent away to uh, a war that was unpopular un- or at least unknown what was going to happen. Sure, but, but you know, uh, people have frequently uh, described genre fiction, science fiction, mystery fiction, Western fiction as escapist uh, literature. Right. But all fiction is escapist. If you're not involved, if you are reading something good, you're involved in that book. You are totally committed to that book, and you're in another world, whether that world is at sea with, with Moby Dick or, or Captain's Courageous or, or if it's a, you know, on, a, on another planet or if it's uh, you know, in a drawing room where somebody has just been murdered. The, all fiction is escapist. It's not just popular or, or genre fiction. Right. Okay. So now on, um, when we earlier met, because we, we were talking about, we were just re-releasing our um, stories from the Golden Age, which we were republishing 153 of the uh, stories that were, Pulp Fiction stories that were written by uh, Owen Hubbard there in the 30s and 40s, a few of them in the 50s, but mostly 30s and 40s. And um, I mean, it's interesting because when we were doing that, we did a lot of research into it to be able to uh, put them out there. And Philip Dick wrote that his fear shaped the way that I write. Arthur Clarke had several letters when he was a young person talking about Hubbard as a writer. And then later on, uh, when he wrote the Mission Earth series, you're saying he was amazed at the energy of of Hubbard. You said you've read some of his uh, Pulp Fiction works, but any particular comments about his Pulp Fiction? Because he obviously went on to create Writers of the Future, and he did a lot of, of essays at the time in the 30s and 40s for us, for writers that he published in in various uh, writing magazines, Writer's Digest and whatnot. He, look, he was a really good pulp writer. Uh, there's no no denying that. Uh, I've read I've I've read so many pulp stories by so many people that uh, you know there are some that stand out, um, and you know I, I think he was at the top of his form. Uh, he, he was as good as any, just about any. I don't think anybody was as good as Raymond Chandler or, or Dashiell Hammett. That's just that's just me. Sure. Uh, it's, it's it's all subjective. We all have our our favorite things. There were the two that the two giants that uh, that bestrode the genre. But uh, you know, and, and a lot of, so many writers were hugely prolific. Uh, Hubbard was 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 certainly one of them. He wrote a lot of stories, yeah. um, and. But but there are, you know there there were so many writers working in that field they worked really hard, and one of the things that's I don't know about a hundred and th- how many books did you say you reissued? Well, we reissued one hundred and fifty three when we did that. There's we since found another hundred that either weren't published or were partially finished. I've got like on the old Doc Methuselah series, which is um, science fiction, but that's there were two unfinished stories that um, uh, S M Sterling is finishing for us. But anyway, okay. but anyway, um, yeah, he he was quite prolific then. 
Okay. Uh, you know, I've, I've rescued some stories that, that had never been reissued and, and so on. And in many cases, I had to read quite a few stories to find the actual terrific story by that writer who I wanted to include in a book. I, I mean, no offense to anybody, I'm not sure that all 153 books are at the top quality no. of what he wrote. And he didn't even uh, say, he, he said it, was, it wasn't. But some, some of them actually were top for that genre, and other ones were, were, were good stories. They're, I mean, Heinlein commented about um, Hubbard's storytelling is that it was a, a story f- uh, line that he would use, which was the man that learned better. So a lot of his stories were, you know, someone that's in a, he's not necessarily a good guy. He's just a guy getting on in life and he doesn't always do the right thing. And then he's, he's put into a position where he's got to make a decision to do the right thing. And then his stories he does and, um, or usually does. And then that's something that a lot of people were able to relate to when he wrote those in the thirties and forties and fifties. And, and when we republish them, that was some of the things that was continued to be said about them that it's because they're people stories, which is why Street and Smith pulled him into writing with Astounding, because it was Astounding was so not people stories at the time that that's that pretty much holds true. People are people now like they were back then, and some of the different things that people do don't change, which is maybe why, like you mentioned, uh, Chandler and Hemet, you know, they're, they're people and there are real people, and that's that's you can still relate to, relate to them now. Absolutely. This is where we started when I was talking about character. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, it really is the most important element of a book. I mean, obviously you need the story and you need some an interesting background. You want to learn something when you're reading. So, you know, you have to have a full, uh, a full background of, of, uh, of, of interesting material. You need some style, but really it, it boils down to the, the, rudiment, which is that you've got to have a character that you care about. And obviously that's the case in, uh, in, in Hubbard's books. And in any book that actually survives the test of time, it's, it's that character. You can still relate to them, even though they're wearing different clothes or, or they have to uh, double clutch to shift a gear. It's still sure. something you can relate to. Absolutely. And that's timeless. I mean, you can read a 19th century book uh, or an 18th century book uh, by the by the real masters and the the situations that are that are encountered uh, the characters responses to those situations are universal if if the writer is at the top of his form yeah and, that... and that's why we still know characters from the 19th century we still know characters from Dickens we, we still we we know Mr. Pickwick we know. Oliver Twist and David Copperfield. We know those characters. Uh, they they survived because Dickens could create characters that were universal. We related to them in 1860, and we relate to them now in 20, 2021. Whatever year it is. <laughs> I can't believe it's 2021. Oh, my God, I'm so old. <laughs> no, it, it's true. Ebenezer Scrooge is still a classic character, you know, that so many years later. Sure. Yeah, people can definitely relate to him. So, um, in terms of the future of publishing, what what have you observed? Because I know digital has been it was a major for my experience on on the eBooks. That was a really major um, boom, you know, decade ago, and then it kind of leveled off. It picked up again with the uh, last year's pandemic, but then the print book seems to um, 
have stopped receding. It's like holding its own. What's been your experience on this right now? Well, you know, uh, the minute that ebooks were invented, uh, people started talking about the death of the book. But of course, they they started talking about the death of the book when radio first came on, and people said, "Oh, well, people aren't are going to stop reading because they're going to listen to the radio." And then again, the death of the book when television and movies became popular. Oh, nobody's going to do this. Then the death of the book when video games became popular. Then the death of the book when ebooks became popular. But you know, last year, 2020, the number of physical books, hard paper copies of books, increased. Increased over the previous year. So yes, ebooks did tremendously well because people weren't going to ball games or concerts or movie theaters and so on. They couldn't they couldn't go out for to play, you know, games. They couldn't go out so they were staying home and they were reading. And a lot of people did it with real books. Um I I you know, I have a, my mysterious press is a regular publishing company. We publish our books in hardcover and paperback and ebook. But I also have an e-publishing company called MysteriousPress.com with about 2,000 titles of, of great writers, classic writers, that we publish exclusively as e-books. And yes, they did tremendously well. They were very success, successful uh, and have been every year since we started. So there is a, a definitely a new uh, way of reading a book. But the number of people who still come into my store and say, you know, I read, I read this book as an ebook, but I liked it so much I want it in my library. Or I've read so many ebooks, I'm really tired of reading on my screen. I want to read a physical book. Um, and there are people who value the, the, the physical presence of a book, the feel of the book. Look, when you, and I don't know if, if your whole audience, I, I don't know about you, I don't know about uh, anybody listening if they have the same experience, but I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that some do. You've read books physically. You, you remember the book. You remember the, what the dust jacket looked like. You remember where you were when you read the book because it made such an impression on you. That isn't true with ebooks. You don't remember the same, you don't have the same experience. You didn't have the visceral sense of touching the book, of turning the page. Uh, when you go back to the book, yeah, you can find your place in an ebook uh, where you left off. But if you want to go back and look at something, it's not the same as flipping pages in a real book and finding that. There, okay, okay, I'm a bookseller. I'm a book person. I was a collector. <laughs> I collected 60,000 first editions of mystery fiction. How many? Which is insane. 60. Holy Six moly. Zero. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's insane. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, <laughs> to any sane person. Because uh, uh, it does take over your life. I had to build a house to hold them. So I'm a, I'm a book pe- person. I'm an old-fashioned book person. Uh, and I have an e-publishing company, as I just said, 20,000 titles. I don't have an e-reader. I don't, I don't read on a screen if I could possibly avoid it. I want to read a physical book. But th- that sense, but even people who read a lot of things on the screen, I hear it all the time, every day in my bookshop. Uh, people who have read 
are reading on the screen, uh, whether it's on their phone or, or a PC or, or whatever device they do it, but they're walking to my store and they say, no, I want a real book. I want to have that experience because it's so different. So I think one of the things, and I don't mean to just rat, keep rattling on here, but you said, what, what about the future of the book? The future of the book is solid. And I'll tell you something else. More people are starting to value the physical object. There are more collectors in the last few years than there were 10 years ago. And there are more people who are looking at the quality of the book. How well is this produced? Now, I don't want a mass market paperback. I want a hardcover. Oh, I don't want a trade paperback. I want a hardcover because they, they value the physical entity, not just what's in the book, not just the, the words, the, 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 the prose, you know, the, the beauty of it all, but the actual physical item. And it, so I think the future of the book is extremely solid. Well, that's good. I read something recently about Gen Z, the 20-somethings, how, who live on devices have been um, migrating more and more towards a hard book to read because there's so much on, on, a, on a phone, on a device, that it's just it totally that transports, you know, you, by holding that book, that visceral feeling you're talking about seems to be an interesting phenomenon that's happening with the younger generation now that they're going back to that. Have you observed, like, younger people getting? Yes. Yes, it's one of the things, it's one of the demographics, if we could use that <laughs> word, uh, of, of what I was just talking about. People coming in saying, you know, I've read, I've been reading so much on the screen, I really want the, the, the sensibility of holding this book, of, of smelling it, of walking into a, a library or a bookstore and smelling the books. You know, it's a different experience entirely. And I'm seeing it with, with teenagers, I'm seeing it with little kids, I'm seeing it with 20s, uh, with every, every age group. And, and the older folks, many of whom have gone to a Kindle, if you'll excuse the expression, I don't like to talk about Amazon because they're an <laughs> evil empire. Okay. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but they have switched to that because, yes, you can change the size of the type and you can illuminate it from the back and as you get older and older and your eyes start to have more and more issues, I can understand why people then would want to read on a screen. I, I do understand that. Um, but almost everybody, right across every age group, every demographic, is uh, at least the people I encounter. You know, I don't, I don't work in an Apple store, so I might, have, I might not have the same experience. I work in a bookstore. So... Uh, everybody who comes in here is not looking for an electronic book. They're looking to get away from it and have the experience of a, of a real book. That's interesting. I read a lot on the screen now, but I'm just listening to you, what you're saying there. I usually, like, I'm rushed. My life is rushed. And so I read to prepare for a podcast. I read to prepare for an interview. I prepare, you know, I do it for that, to prepare for that. And just, but if I want to be able to just, relax and enjoy, which is such a rarity. I like the hardback book. I like to sit down and read in that field of paper and just kind of like, at my own pace, just go through and enjoy a book. And it's... Absolutely, yeah. Well, we're the same. Look, you know, I, I, I have to read a lot of manuscripts because I'm, I publish original fiction. Right. Um, and I can read five or ten pages on the screen. If something looks really good, 
Or uh, let me add to that, if it's an author that I'm already publishing and, I'm, uh, and I have to read the book and edit the book, I print it out. I print it out and then make all my editorial notes and, and things on a printed page because I can't do it on the screen. I can't concentrate the same way that I can with uh, the physical presence of a hard copy. And you certainly can't mark it up. Where I haven't figured out how to mark it up and make it stay when I do it on the screen. You know, it's just... uh, I'm no good at it. I, my, everybody on my staff can do it, and virtually every author that I work with can do it. But I, I turn it over to my publisher. I say, Here, we, got, we, we got the author's responses from the copy editor who did it you know, with blue lines and red lines or whatever they are, mm-hmm. all these things on the screen. Um, can you help me? Because I, I just I can't even open these things. I can't even read them, yeah. much less fix them. So you know, it's it's a burden that uh, that I've had to pass along to somebody a lot smarter than I am. The one thing I do like about reading a digital version of a book is to be able to highlight the word and then go to the dictionary right away. I'm fastidious about clearing words, understanding you know understanding the words that I'm reading, and um, so if I run into a word I don't understand in, in a book, I have to look it up so I can, okay, what's he saying? Because if you don't understand the word, how can you understand his concept? So it's really nice on the, the K word, the Kindle, to be able to highlight the word and it, and it opens up into a dictionary so I can then fully understand that word and then what's the definition the author is using on that. My vocabulary expands as a result, but I also end up understanding the story, you know, much better. Sure. So that's the one thing I really like about that. Otherwise, uh, the, the sense of, of just holding the book is like, I agree with you. It's, it's with that extra dimension that it provides, it's, it's much more pleasurable. I do remember them better. I wasn't thinking like that before, but now that you, you know, thinking as you were saying that stuff, that, that holds true. Because I totally remember like, you know, so many years ago reading Call of the Wild, you know, just that still, I've got, I've, I can picture what the book looked like. I got it at a Texaco gas station when they had the <laughs> Book of the Month Club, and I, and, I, and I saved my, it was $1.99, whatever, and I got it, and I read it, and I was just like, oh, I love this book, and Moby Dick, and just, you know, those Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, you know, I totally remember what they felt like, what they looked like, um, the dust jackets, and it, it's just, it, they stay with me now so many years later. There you go, John. You, you've just, uh, I rest my case. <laughs> you do indeed. <laughs> indeed. And just some amazing pleasure moments you just brought back for me with that. That was great. Um, yeah, we, we all read so much for work on the screen. And, and like you, I'm rushed all the time. I get three or four or more hundred emails every day. Mm-hmm. And I read that stuff and then respond to it quickly. Uh, and it's great for all of that. But for reading for pleasure, the screen is just not, not going to do it for me. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, such a good point you made. And I just, I'm, if nothing else, even if nobody else listens to this, which I know it's not going to be the case, I feel great from just what we talked about just now <laughs> and that. <laughs> <laughs> Trip down memory lane of we're reading books when we were kids or, or young people and, and finding, you know, that that memory comes back about what that book looked like and where you were when you read it. You know, I remember reading The Count of Monte Cristo. I was, I was forced to go to bed at a certain time. Um, and I had 
it was it's it's trite it's a cliche but i literally had my flashlight under the blankets you know i was 11 years old or 10 years old 12 maybe i don't remember exactly and i'm reading and i read that book i still remember how it was always under that's where i was where i read most of the book was with a blanket covering my flashlight so that i could continue reading i couldn't stop it uh you want to and talk about a book that that still resonates today with a character who understood vengeance, who understood the concept of revenge. Edmund Dantes was that character, and yeah. I still love that book. Wow, that was um, at least 20 years ago, huh? <laughs> at least, yeah. <laughs> so, um, now I've talked about lots of different things, but anything else that you can think of as a publisher that you would like to tell the aspiring writer or somebody who's got a manuscript or shopping around do's and don'ts of how to shop a manuscript? Well, uh, you know, so there are the, the basics, which is, uh, you know, you type it, make sure you check your, your spell check, and, you know, get, get rid of the typos. When you think you've finished it, read it one more time because you probably will discover things that, uh, that you didn't see the first or, or second time through, especially if you've given it a little time. Um, when somebody has spent six months or a year writing a book, there's a sense of urgency. I want this out there. I want to get this out there. I want to get this read. I want to find an agent or I want to find a publisher. Um, and you want to do all of those things, but, it, but it's really smart to put it aside for a couple of weeks and come back to it and read it one more time. Uh, I would focus, you cannot focus enough on the first 20 pages. You, I don't care how many times you've rewritten and edited and fine-tuned, it's probably not enough because the truth is you may think that you have written a fabulous book, and you may indeed have, but every agent that I know, every editor that I know, every publisher that I know is overworked. They don't have nearly enough time in their days to read everything they want to read or have to read. So if you don't have me in those first 20 pages, I don't care if you have written the greatest masterpiece of the 20th century. 21st century. (laughs) (laughs) I have to get used to that. If you don't have me in those first 20 pages, I'll never know because I'm not going to keep reading. I don't have time. I have 10 books sitting on my, on, on my, in my inbox that I need to read. Am I going to read, look for page 50 or page 80 on a book where I haven't been grabbed in the first 20 pages? No. No. So it has to, you have to grab whoever it is that you're looking for uh, in those first 20 pages. I might, if I'm being tough, I might even say first 10 pages. But, uh, but generally I'll give a book, uh, 20 pages because I'm so sympathetic to somebody who's just devoted a year of their life to trying to produce something creative and wonderful for the world. Um, I like to give them a little extra, a little extra time, but, uh, generally I will know by five pages. I'll definitely know by 10, but I try to give it a little bit more if there's even a spark of something that's original or or really unusual that say oh well this this might be 
something that improves better or that or that is uh, uh, that that holds me in in another way. It, it, it's a beginning of something terrific. Um, so you know, I, I will try to give it a little a little extra time. But you have to find an agent who has uh, probably a hundred manuscripts waiting to be read. You've got to grab them by the throat in those first twenty pages at the most. Okay, well that's that's actually a very good tip to have on that. Now you're obviously talking about long fiction. Do you do anything with short fiction anymore? No. You, how do you publish short fiction? You need a magazine. Uh, or and, anthologies. Or an anthology of original stories. If I did, uh, most of my anthologies in, in later years have been reprints of previously published material. Um, I mean, I, I do an anthology every year now called Best Mystery Stories of the Year, but those are all stories that have been published previously in anthologies or uh, in magazines, sometimes e-magazines, but but I but we read them all. Uh, we look at about three thousand stories a year, uh, but they have to be previously published. I used to commission original stories, but but that's not much use to uh, to most people because basically, if you're if you're putting together an anthology of original fiction. Uh, the only way it's going to sell any serious number of copies is if you have some big names, um, you know, and I used to commission original stories from people like Elmore Leonard and Ed McBain and, and Donald Westlake and Lawrence Block and, and, uh, people at that level, um, you know, not, not first time writers. It's too, it's too risky, uh, to commission a story and then find that it's no good. And then what do you yeah. do? You, you know, you've given somebody an assignment and they worked hard to produce a story and sometimes hard work just isn't enough. It may not have something that's needed. And so uh, it, it, that is not useful for first-time writers. There are small, smaller public, really small publishing companies that will look at first stories. They're doing anthologies on a regular basis, down-and-out books, for example. Uh, but mostly... If you are looking to have a career in write, as a writer and have a career in publishing, you really need to find an agent uh, and try not to submit novels on your own. Very, very few publishing companies. Small ones will, but very few of the major publishing houses and even the mid-sized houses don't read unagented manuscripts. They generally will only read something that comes from an agent. So the hard part is to get an agent. And then the, the question then, of course, is, well, how do I get an agent? <laughs> <laughs> you go online, you type in, you Google literary agents, and an organization will pop up on your screen with most of the major literary agents, and you'll see what they specialize in. If you're, reading, if you're writing YA books, there'll be, there'll be agents who specialize in YA books, uh, or thrillers, or science fiction, or science nonfiction, you know, they list their specialties and that's how you find an agent and that's who you submit to. And if they're listed in, in what, in like, in that type of a, of a reference, are they going to be pretty much proven to be a good, good agent versus some of the shysters, which are horror stories that are written about, you know, that there, there are bad stories about literary agents, just as there are bad stories about everybody. But there's an organization of literary agents uh, where they are required to meet certain standards, and that will show up if you Google literary agents. Okay. So 
Where do people go to find you with your mysterious bookshop, or uh, where do you recommend they go uh, digitally to, to discover you and your uh, imprint or your publishing the, house and your bookshop? Yeah, the easiest way is mysteriousbookshop.com. Uh, there's a, a, an a address there that says info at mysteriousbookshop.com, and if it pertains to me and if it's anything that I can help with, that comes to me, I get that, and I respond to anybody uh, with uh, who needs help or that is uh, that, that has a worthwhile question. You know, if if it, I don't have time to sit and chat about like what are my favorite books and things like that. I really don't. I, I don't mean to sound arrogant in any way, uh, but I have a finite number of. I, I work an average of twelve, thirteen hour days. So, so you're a, a typical publisher. You just work half days. I just don't have time to chat. Yeah. You know, even my friends, I, I don't answer all of their emails. I say, I'm sorry, I don't have time to chat right now. Yeah. But, but yeah, that, that'll reach me. I'm, I'm easy to reach. Good. Well, this is great that we've been able to reach you to be able to do this uh, podcast interview. So thank you very much, Otto. Thank you, John. You made it easy. You asked good questions, and, and we were able to uh, hope we were able to follow up in a way that, uh, that, that you wanted and that your, that your audience found useful and helpful. I definitely think so. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction and fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Otto. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me, John.